Dear fellow redeemed, we consider our gospel lesson from the gospel of Matthew chapter 11. And the question that you have to ask, what do you do with doubt? What do you do with doubt? Here is John the Baptist, the greatest of the prophets. John the Baptist who stood at the banks of the Jordan River or the Jordan stream or creek or trickle, depending on the time of year. John the Baptist who stood there and pointed to the Pharisees and Sadducees and with all the confidence in the world. Who warned you, you offspring of vipers? You speak your father's language, the language of snakes. Who warned you to flee? And he stood there confidently pointing and saying, when the Messiah comes, he's going to set everything straight and he is ready to judge the world. And then everything, everything will be as it is and as it should be. This John the Baptist who seemed to have not a fear, not a care in the world. This John the Baptist who was supplied by the Lord almost like Elijah, eating whatever wild food God had provided for him to find. And this John the Baptist, who had such confidence, it may seem, or at least such compulsion to carry out his ministry, that he even spoke to the King Herod of the day, a different King Herod from Christmas time, but a king, the King Herod of the day, and told him, you know, it's not right for you to um, take your brother's wife as your own wife. And that should be simple enough to see as, as wrong. But nobody said it until John. And King Herod said, all right, John, that's enough. We can't have you wandering around and saying things like that, maybe creating a political scandal for me. You should go sit in prison for a while. But even King Herod was so intimidated by John that he just left John to languish. He did not, you know, have John put to death. He just let him sit there for a while. That maybe if enough time passes, then he wouldn't have to worry about this John the Baptist. That somehow whatever scandal was there would solve itself. And that somehow this John the Baptist wouldn't be that much of a problem anymore. Just give it a little bit more time and uh, let the next administration take over. And then it's not my problem anymore. You fill in the blanks however you may wish. But King Herod thinks that he solved the problem. And he leaves John there. And John sits there. And when he's sitting there, he's wondering. As he sits there and his disciples, the ones who had followed him, the ones who had heard him point out Jesus the Messiah, the ones who had been baptized by him, the ones who had been regular there every single Sunday and every week in between, the ones who had listened to him and followed him, helped to supply his needs. And at the beginning, it was simple enough. Well, you know, this is just what you have to go through sometimes. This is the cost of being faithful to the Word of God. But after a while, the numbers started to dwindle. And the disciples started to dissipate. And even worse, John the Baptist sits there and, um, and he starts to wonder. Where is the, the threshing floor? Where is the winnowing shovel? Where is the fire that is supposed to cleanse his threshing floor? And how much longer do I have to sit here because I didn't do anything wrong? 
No doubt he drew some comparisons to the life of Joseph, who was also improperly imprisoned. And as he sat there, he wondered, maybe I was wrong. In that moment of moments, perhaps it's likely that John turned away from what he had heard, what he had preached, what he had known, and said, at the very least, we should double check. Because I'm not hearing or seeing much from this Jesus that says he is the Messiah. Because if he is, where's the power, where's the kingdom, where's the glory? But what I see, what I see is this, you know, apparently greatest prophet languishing in prison. What do you do with doubt? That's the question. What do you do with doubt? It's not just John the Baptist. It's John the Baptist, and we see some of the the flaws of his thinking, and we see where Jesus points. It's John the Baptist who tries tries to understand exactly what and why and wherefore within his own life. It's John the Baptist who takes his eyes off the Word of God for the briefest of moments and starts to wonder, but what good is God going to do for me now? It's John the Baptist who has some concerns and some questions, but the only people that he can turn to are those those handful of disciples of his, those handful who are looking to him for answers. What do you do with doubt? I'm sure that question has, um, has crossed your mind or your life at one point or another, whether it is for yourself or for a loved one. What do you do with doubt? Because the, the answer that is, normally, that is normally arrived at is, well, pastor, I don't feel like it today. I'd, you know, I'd, I'd love to make it to church, but I've got some worries and I've got some concerns. And I'm not sure if I believe that anymore. What do you do with doubt when it's your own loved one, when it's your own self, when it's your own suffering, when it's the the pain of your own life and what you had thought would be, you know, kind of how your life turned out isn't exactly, isn't exactly the case. Maybe John the Baptist and his answer, at least the answer that we see here, as he sits there and he stews and he tries to figure it out for himself. And it takes some time and he realizes that he can't. That he can't figure it out for himself. That simply sitting in his cell and thinking about what he knows about God and trying to parse it out according to human reason and parse out according to um, what he has learned or what he has preached. He didn't see the big picture. What do you do with doubt? When it's not just what you're thinking and what you're trying to put together and trying to parse out the goodness of God when you see the pain and suffering of this world. But what do you do with doubt when it's also your emotions that kind of get wrapped up and swept along? Emotions or expectations. When we had perhaps some sort of other expectation for God and that we had thought that we had done everything well. But here we are, still dealing with the same basic problems 
just in a somewhat more complex way. Where you can instruct a child in the basics of the Christian faith, but then our emotions say we have to move past those basics in, and because they don't actually have the answer that we want. Sometimes, sometimes that creeps in around the sides, that idea. As if to say that the simple and basic truths of God's word applied for me, for my basic understanding, but at some point, at some point, we have to move past that, and God has to have something more to say than what he has in his, you know, in his catechism instruction. And that God must have something more to say for my particular circumstance and my particular life. And that can bring forth some strong emotions. Especially when we are talking about um, somebody that we love or care about, or even ourselves. What do you do with doubt? When your, your human reason is trying to put the pieces together and can't quite make the puzzle pieces fit. And your human heart is trying to say, I know what I want and I know how I feel and I know what I expect from God, but what I'm seeing in my life isn't matching up and the answers that I got as a 6th, 7th, or 8th grader aren't quite holding water the way that they used to. And John the Baptist sat there for a while. And his disciples kept coming. And there's a little bit of a question as to whether John the Baptist is finally trying to push the rest of his disciples off to Jesus, or whether John the Baptist is actually having a crisis of faith and struggling with this. And personally, I, I fall mostly into the latter camp. That John the Baptist is having a serious struggle, and he is wondering when and why and how this Jesus could be the answer when all of life, life's questions seem so much more complex. He's wondering when and why and how this Jesus could be the Messiah. And that simple truth that he had learned as a young boy from Elizabeth and Zechariah, he was wondering how that simple truth applied when he was sitting in prison for that very truth. And so his disciples come to him again and maybe bring him, bring him some lunch that day or maybe a new blanket. And John says, why don't you go see Jesus? And double, just, just double check with him. Are you the one or should we expect someone else? Should we be looking somewhere else or are you going to follow through with, with what we expect from you? Are you going to get the winnowing fork and shovel out of your backpack and get to work? Or, or am I going to sit here for a while? What do you do with doubt? The answers that don't work Let's start there. The answers that don't work are John sitting in prison and saying, I can just figure this out on my, on my own as long as I think about it hard enough. The answers that don't work, that I simply dismiss all that I know to be true, or I follow my emotions, or I just tell myself it's nothing to worry about and move on with my life. The answers that don't work, looking at the world around us and trying to figure out why and how and what of our own lives based on just what you see in the world and what you know from conscience. Because the answer cannot, will not, 
will never come from, you know, the natural knowledge of God, what we know about God from nature and conscience. And the answer will not, cannot, will never come from your own prayer. That the answer can only come from Jesus. Prayer is us talking to God, and he certainly hears it and answers it. But how do you deal with doubt? You need Jesus to talk to you. You need Jesus to talk to you. And so John sends his disciples and he says, why don't you go see Jesus? Uh, make an appointment or just track him down somewhere. And, um, and that's where we pick up. While John was in prison, he heard about the things Christ was doing. He sent two of his disciples to ask him, are you the coming one or should we wait for someone else? And it sounds like the most hopeless of questions. Are you the one... Or should we just hit the snooze button on this whole Messiah bit and move on? And you know what Jesus does? He doesn't come out and say, yes, no. He doesn't come out and say, John, just follow your heart and you figure it out. He doesn't say, John, think of all that you know from the world around you. He doesn't say, John, sit at your home until you finally have the confidence to, to walk through the church doors. He says, Go and report to John what you see and hear. He doesn't direct John to even what he, what he knows from his youth. He doesn't say, John, look up Isaiah and the prophet Isaiah. He doesn't say, John, um, remember the first, second, and third article, although that would have been certainly helpful. Jesus doesn't say, John, follow your heart, or if you just keep thinking about it, John, then it'll all make sense. He says, go report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the gospel is preached to the poor. Blessed is the one who does not take offense at me. And with those words, he refers directly and explicitly to a prophecy from Isaiah. Not our reading, our first reading today. Um, it's earlier in the book of Isaiah where Isaiah says, when Messiah comes, this is what it's going to be like. He's going to bring something that is totally different, totally new. Those who are dead will walk out of their tombs. Those who cannot see can set down the white cane and learn to read letters on a page instead of braille by the finger. Those who can't walk can leave the walker and the wheelchair and the crutches where they belong. Those who have been ostracized from society because of this incurable and contagious skin condition, they will be joining God's people in worship. Go and report to John what you hear and see. And he sends these two disciples back with just a word in their pocket. Just a word in their pocket to say, here's what Jesus said that we should, that we've seen, that we have seen him do these things. Here's what we have seen Jesus do. And he did that, not just to demonstrate his power and his authority and his messiahship, but he did that to direct our eyes back to the bare written word of God. That, messiah, that Isaiah had said the Messiah would do these things. So go tell John, this is what you see, that the Messiah is doing exactly what he said. That the good news is preached to the poor, and it's kind of like what we talked about a few weeks ago, that maybe John's perspective is a little bit uh, telescoped. 
where he thought, you know, between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, that those things would be happening contemporaneously. And he didn't see that there was some space in between. That's possible. And maybe it's possible that John is caught up in looking for the glory. Instead of seeing that the life of the believer is one of suffering under the cross precisely for this purpose. Not because God is helpless. And not because God likes to inflict pain on people. But so that people despair of of their own wisdom. And people despair of simply being satisfied by the answers that nature and conscience have to offer. That people despair of their own emotions and say, I have nothing, nothing, nothing to go on except what God says right here. And that, that alone is my life. And what God says right here must be true. Even when I don't see or think or feel like it can be. But what God says right here must be true because he has said it. And that's where Jesus really, really ends up. That the attitude of the believer, that the attitude of John says that this Jesus concealed his glory for you and for me. But he revealed his glory in all these little ways, in the miracles that he did, so that you and I can be certain, not just that he's the Messiah, but that he's the Messiah who had been promised for 2,000 plus years, that he is the exact Messiah that Isaiah had described, that he is the exact Messiah that we needed, the exact Messiah that is stronger than our human wisdom by far, that is stronger than our hearts and our emotions, that has answers that, yes, even go beyond our human experience. But most of all, that this is the Messiah. And he came to do all the things that God had promised. That this Messiah would, yes, raise the dead and heal the blind. And give um, the, the ability to walk to those who are lame. That this Messiah is exactly who he said he would be. And he came first the first time to carry sin, yours and mine. He came to point, to point back to Scripture. That he had fulfilled every single element of that. So that you and I can have the confidence and certainty to say, you know what? <laughs> I see what my human reason says. And I know what my heart wants. But the only thing that I need is this word of God. That the, the simple truths that we even recite every Sunday, like small ca- holy baptism part four, those simple truths aren't simplistic. And I, I hesitate to use even the word simple, but rather foundational. Those foundational truths are still the answer. And there might be a little bit more nuance to it, and it's, but it's the starting point to be able to move on from catechism class to discussing with your fellow Christians about Romans 14 or 15, for example, 10.15 a.m. today. And it's the foundational part to be able to move on to discussing with your fellow Christians about the, um, God's word and God's work as immediate or immediate, like in our Thursday evening Bible class. That what do you do with doubt? If you don't know, then look at what John the Baptist says. And look at what he does. 
He doesn't just sit there and languish. He says, go find out. He says, go find out. I've got a pastor and his name is Jesus Christ. Go ask him. You've got a pastor. It's not Jesus, but he sent me here to help deal with your doubt. And I want to see you. We've got seating for like either 78 or 82 people in there. And frankly, where do you have to be on Sunday morning before 11 o'clock? That's different than that. Because I know you deal with doubt. Because I know you have loved ones who have dealt with this doubt. And for better or for worse, maybe they're still foundering. Maybe they're entirely shipwrecked. And maybe you don't even know where they're at. Or the sad part, maybe you're worried that you do. I don't know if Romans 15 addresses that precisely. But in January, we're going to talk about that a little bit more directly. How do we deal with the questions that people ask? At the end of January, we're going to have, um, on our Potluck Sunday at the end of January, we're going to have our Q&A Sunday, where we talk about um, whatever questions you may have. You know, there's a lot of things that Pastor Hagen doesn't talk about, and a lot of things that that are better suited for a Bible class, but at the same time, um, to communicate the truth that God's Word, although it may be simple, It is far more than that. It is not simplistic. It is foundational. To communicate the truth that when John the Baptist sat in prison for preaching God's word, it wasn't pleasant, but the word from the Messiah brought him joy because it directed him back to the certainty and the clarity of the word of God. I don't know. I used to say I doubt, but now we'll just move to I don't know if any of us will ever be in prison for our faith or face something worse than that. But that's beside the point. Because we still live in a world. We still live in a world that hates Jesus and will do all it can to direct our eyes and attention away from the word of God. And so that question, what do you do with doubt? (laughs) Ask John the Baptist. He's got an answer for you. Amen.